They're all listed here in the rooted update. So $225,000 came in last weekend and throughout this month for the big give, and we are so excited and grateful. And we have $75,000 of new pledges, which is awesome. Remember, our goal is 500, and we need 300 to move forward with the expansion project up into Forest to be able to let that developer build on that gift of land that he's giving us, that 10 acres on the corner of 51 and Windsor Road. So we're real excited. If you haven't caught up with that, you can still do that. Uh, a little bit from all of us will get it done. So thanks for following up. So did you hear the good news uh, in the My Fair home? It finally happened. Laura was two and a half weeks late. She was literally in the hospital at 8 o'clock Monday morning and didn't deliver till 5 o'clock Wednesday. Are you kidding me? But Henry Asher made it into this world. Now, isn't that, the, that was the first picture we got. This is like Henry going, what happened here? I was comfortable. Why did, what, what just, I don't like this new brave world. So he settled down. Here's another picture, the picture of peace. So um, we're the happy grandparents of a little guy named Henry. Uh, my dad's name is Henry, my great-grandfather and my grandfather, all Henry's. And uh, Asher means happy, and he's brought a lot of happiness into our lives. Can't wait to go see that little guy. So we're continuing in the storyline in the book of Ruth. Let me read this quote from David Brooks's article, The Strange Persistence of Guilt, New York Times, March 31st. People have a sense of guilt and sin. That's very clear. And one of the things he argues is that we turn to victimhood to appease and assuage our guilt. So we have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There is sin, but no formula for redemption. There's sin, but no formula for redemption. The book of Ruth is going to make it crystal clear that there is a loving God who reigns and cares over his universe and that there is a plan of redemption. The book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is this wonderful paradox, this wonderful, bright, shining moment in the sad history of the judges where everything's spiraling down and everybody is doing that which is right in their own eyes. And the people of God, the Israelites, are continually doing evil in the eyes of the Lord by turning away from God and turning to idols. And in the midst of that dark period, there's this beautiful story it's a story of God's providence and of his love and his care for the vulnerable. It's about his faithfulness to his promise to bring a redeemer, not just into Ruth and Naomi's life, but into all of our lives. It's this beautiful story of this loyal devotion and affection that these two women have for each other, Naomi and her daughter-in-law. Ruth. It's this beautiful story of how God captures the heart of a young woman who would be categorized in that day as part of the enemies of God's people. She's a Moabitess. God's beautiful care for the vulnerable 
these two widows in their plight. So grab your Bible. The book of Ruth is where we're, are, where we're at. You can use the table of contents. Otherwise, it's after Judges, before Samuel. And in fact, Ruth will do, in the storyline here of our Bibles, it's going to connect the period of the Judges to the period of the kings and specifically to the greatest king, King David. So the story begins... And it begins with tragedy. We read in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah. We remember that's where Jesus was born, right? That means the house of bread. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Let me just show you where that is on this, on this map. So they're from Bethlehem. So they're from up here, right? Bethlehem, just, just south of Jerusalem. And they travel into Moab because there's a famine here in the land. They're kind of backtracking where the Israelites came when they moved into the promised land. Verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech, which means God is king. His wife's name was Naomi. That means pleasant. And the names of his two sons are Malon and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, <laughs> and the other Ruth. And they'd lived there about 10 years. After they'd lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her widow. So the story starts out with tragedy, with loss, with famine, and with this emptiness of soul for this woman and her two daughter-in-laws. She's been uprooted from her home. She's lost her husband. To make matters worse, she's lost Malon and Killian, which means it's the equivalent of losing all of your retirement fund and having no social security benefits at all complete vulnerability and to top it off she's in a foreign land she's not with her people she can't claim the privileges that the law of god would give the poor widows and orphans in israel she's in a far off place and she's in a bad place and when she finally gets home to bethlehem and she's coming with Ruth. The women look at a far and they go, I think that's Naomi. Naomi. And she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitterness. She says this in verse 20 of chapter 1. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. She had a husband, two sons. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. It's a very hard beginning to this story. And it didn't just happen like in the first 15 minutes of the program. This is a, a slide over years of the famine and leaving family losing her husband, and, and then losing her sons. It reminds me of that quote that we caught up with a couple weeks ago. 
Do you remember it from Jerry Bridges? Look at it again. Do not believe everything you think. And let me add feel. Read that next line with me. You cannot be trust. Oh, you guys awake? All right, here we go. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. So stay in the word. Don't believe everything you think. I mean, that's exactly how she felt. That's exactly what she was thinking. Back to verse 20. The Lord's brought me back empty. The Lord's afflicted me. He's brought this misfortune on me. And the feelings are strong and they're powerful, but it doesn't mean they're what? True. Doesn't mean they're true. So we always tie down the feelings of our hearts, the thoughts of our minds to the word of God, lest we redefine God's character and lest we recast what is truly happening in our day as we're experiencing the tragedies of life. Are you there right now in hard times, feeling strong? Don't believe everything you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the word of God. You don't ever doubt. That is true. That is true. So it begins with tragedy. And in the midst of that, we meet a God who cares. And we see his providential care unfolding in three ways here in the text. To Ruth and through Ruth to Naomi. And the first example of God's providential care in Ruth's life is a surprise. It's her mother-in-law not what we're usually thinking. You know the saying behind every great man? You know that one, how that goes? It's not just a proud mother, but a surprise mother-in-law. Have you heard that one? <laughs> Didn't know that was going to happen with that guy. So uh, anyways, th this, this, this was a great mother-in-law. This is a great mother-in-law who blesses her daughters-in-law as, as they are going out of town and she changes her mind and says, guys, you, you go back. You go back and marry one of the guys from, from Moab and start over. Don't, don't come with me. I'm too old to get married. And even I got married and had a son today. You can't wait for that son or those sons to grow up and be married. So just go back. And, and they weep and they wail. They say, we're not going to go. And she says, no, go back. And, and Orpah goes back. But verse 14 says this, at this, very, at this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Genesis 2.24. A man is to leave his father and mother and cling, be united. That word, that, that super glue adhesion, she wasn't going anywhere. And this was a grace in her life, in Ruth's life, that she had this godly woman in her life. And though she was struggling in the bitterness of her life experience, she had this long record of loving God and loving those that God had placed in her life. She had this largeness of heart where she was willing to let go. The only thing that she had to bank on her two daughters-in-law, and she lets them go. She's blessing these women, the text says. She's releasing these women. And she blesses, blesses this woman, Ruth. So the struggle never canceled out the impact. In fact, 
The struggles of life show the tenacity of our faith that even when we are wrestling with God, people see that we're wrestling in the context that there is a God and believing that he is good. And that marks Ruth's life. And that's the first grace of God's care for Ruth, that he used the hardship of a famine to bring this woman and her family to Moab and into Ruth's life so that she could be impressed over time with this woman and then receive the grace of God, which is the second mark of God's care, that he gives her the grace to believe that Naomi's God is a God worth following. So we read on in the text, verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. And this is beautiful. We hear this repeated at weddings. But if it was truly in context at a wedding, it would be the bride saying it to her mother-in-law. And we'd all go, oh, my word. But th this, is, this is what it is. It's what she's saying. Where you go, Naomi, Ruth says, I'll go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. If even death separates you and me, nothing. I'm with you to the end. Wherever you go, wherever you stay, your people, my people, your God, my God. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. This is powerful, and it's beautiful. And she comes under the care of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Boaz is going to say of Ruth at the back half of verse 12, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So it wasn't just lip service. She was turning back on her gods. In fact, Ruth said, go, Naomi said to, to, to Orpah and Ruth, go back to your people or go back to your gods. And when she said, my God, your God will be my God, she wasn't just saying this. It was at a heart level. And Boaz recognizes that she has submitted herself and come under the protective care, the images of under God's wings, his protective care for refuge. There's a third example of God's care, not just in this godly mother-in-law, not just in this grace that would get this Moabites right. She doesn't, have, she doesn't have the history of God's faithfulness. She doesn't have the, 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 the scrolls of the law being read in her gathering. She doesn't have that oral tradition of God's word. It's all new to her. And then there's the third grace, and that is of Boaz, who's going to be described in a technical term as the kinsman redeemer, this goel in the Hebrew. We're going to have to catch up. This, this idea of redemption is throughout the book. But Boaz is the third example of God's care for Ruth, letting her find food 
and care and protects her. And we read about the meeting in chapter 2, verse 3. So they've gotten to Bethlehem. They've settled in. They don't have anything. They don't have any fields. They don't have any money. And so Ruth says, Naomi, I'm going to go out and I'm going to glean in the fields as the law of God permits the widows and the orphans and the aliens to do. So verse 3, so she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters as it turned out. Again, God's providential care as it turned out. It's not saying, and what a coincidence. No, this is God's plan that he led her to Boaz's field. She was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Who's Elimelech? Her father-in-law. He's family. We're going to find out. He's close family. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. That wasn't a coincidence. God's orchestrating their coming together. Just then, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Look at this great man, this noble man of character. The Lord be with you. That's how he walked in the office on Monday morning. The Lord be with you. And all the employees answered back, and the Lord bless you. Just how it works in your office, right? <laughs> Verse 5, Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Maybe she caught his eye. I bet you she did. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. What does that tell you? She's working what? Hard. For who? For her mother-in-law that she loves and cares for. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, see, he's a lot older than her. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Now just picture this. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? That's a disproportionate response, isn't it? Uh, Unless you've lived in her world of complete vulnerability, a foreigner in a strange land, and that act of kindness drops her to her knees. Why, Why have... Why have you done this, she says. Why have you done this? Boaz replied, verse 11, I've been told all about you, what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. In other words, she's a refuge by choice. She chose. Orpah chose to stay. Ruth chose to go. May the Lord, verse 12, repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge by faith, right? She's come under his care. And she says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Let us never discount kindness to the vulnerable. It it, it will have a 
disproportionate effect. The grace and kindness of Christ that has adopted us into his family, that full of that, the overflow of that, would grace people with the kindness of our great God. Never discount that. And so Boaz is an extension of God's protection to Ruth. Right? He's giving her food. He's protecting her. He's kind. He says later to the men, hey, guys, just so you know, this woman can get anything and everything. In fact, you just, you don't, not only don't touch her, not only make sure she has full access to everything, but would you make her life a little easier right now? And so as you're gathering up the barley and the wheat, would you just drop a little more on the floor so she can gather that up too? That's what he says in the text. God's care for this vulnerable foreigner, this widow, by Boaz. In verse 20, Naomi puts it this way when she goes back and tells how that first day went of gleaning and how she went into Boaz's field. She says this, that is Naomi of Boaz. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. He is our close relative, our guardian redeemer. That's that kinsman redeemer so he goes from protecting her to being kind to her and then he marries her that's what chapter three is all about things are going well and naomi says at the beginning my daughter verse one i must find a home for you where you will be provided for in other words you got to get married I need you to find rest under the care of a husband who's going to take care of you. That word home is the same word rest back in 1 verse 9 when he says, when she says, find rest in the home of a husband, another husband. So you say, this is what needs to happen. And her plan is Boaz, her close relative, and she's going to bring these two together. So Naomi becomes the happy matchmaker right now and what's happening here is so you know it's just a cultural we, we just disconnect remember it's not written to us it's written for us and even the people it was written to there's gonna be parts of the story where it has to interpret what they did because they didn't know the cultural customs so we're gonna catch up with these things but behind the cultural customs are some principles that come out of the the, the, the law of God and commands that had to do with what happens when a poor widow wants to sell her property that the closest relative is, is given the first right of refusal to keep that land within the family, so to speak. And so in Leviticus 25, 25, it says this, if one of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. That's in play. We'll see it in just a minute. And the other dealt with what's called leverite marriage. And you go, what is that? So lever, L-E-V-I-R, is a Latin word that just basically means brother-in-law. So brother-in-law marriage. We go, what in the world is that? So this was a command that protected not only the family name, but the widow without a son to make sure that she would be cared for in her old age. And so we read this in 25.5 of Deuteronomy. 
If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. And so this situation here follows the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, because there's no indication that Boaz is Ruth's brother-in-law. In other words, he's not Malon's brother. There's no indication in the text. But he is a close relative. In fact, that's exactly, in verse 20, what Naomi said of him. So here's the situation. Naomi says, Ruth, here's what I want you to do. I I want you to get dressed up. I want you to get dolled up, some nice perfume. And I want you tonight to go to the threshing floor where Boaz and his workers are going to be threshing the wheat. That was often done towards the end of the day when the wind kind of blew up before sunset, throwing up, right, the, 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 the wheat, the barley, and then the chaff would be separated by by the wind. And so he's going to be doing that. It's that time of year. We know that. It's the barley harvest time, the text tells us. And so I want you to go. I don't want you to walk in where everybody knows who you are and where you are. I want you to slip in kind of under the cover of darkness, but be there so you know exactly where he's lying down on the threshing floor. And then you go lie at his feet and you uncover, you uncover his feet by just pulling back the blanket, so to speak. And we're all going, What's going on here? What's going on here? Well, what's not going on here is some kind of sexual advance. That's not what's going on here. So we just keep reading in the text, verse 7. So we're in chapter 3, verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. So she's she's there where she started. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So what's his reaction? The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier, speaking of her kind loyalty to Naomi. You have not run after the younger men, which you could have, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. This woman is a woman of noble character in a period of time when all the Israelites are doing evil in the eyes of the world of the Lord. And each of them doing that which is right in their own mind. Stands tall, this Moabitess from Moab, the enemy people of God. All, everybody in town knows about your noble character. Verse 12, now we got a problem. Although it's true that I'm a guardian, redeemer of our family, There is another who's more closely related than I. Oh, no. Is he going to get stuck with some other guy that's not as kind? as? What happens? Stay here for the night, he says, verse 13. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. So he submits to the teaching of the word, right? But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. 
He gives her six measures of barley in her scarf. She goes home, tells Naomi everything that's going on, and Boaz makes a beeline to the city gate. What's that about? Well, it's like where deals were done. That's where the, the rulers, the elders of the city were. He sees his close relative. He grabs him and 10 other elders, and he says, we need to have a confab. So here's the deal. Naomi's back. You probably know that. She's poor, so she needs to sell some land. You have first right of refusal as the closest living relative. He says, I'm in for it. I'll buy the land. He says, there's one caveat. If you're going to buy the land, you also get the daughter-in-law, Ruth. He goes, oh, that's a problem. That's a problem. That could actually jeopardize my estate. I'm out. Verse 7, I'm out. I'm not going to do that. So then Boaz moves in. He says, before all the elders, I just want you to know, I'm going to buy that land, and I'm going to marry Ruth, and then they shake hands, except they don't shake hands. They do something that they did that was like shaking hands in their day, and it's called, they took off their sandals, and they gave each other their sandals. The deal was struck, just like we do it, right? It's a little smellier. Maybe it just has more... You know, maybe you remember it more if the old factory is involved. But that, that, that's an exact, look at it, verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Thought I was making it up. It's right there. So what happens? They get married. We read about that marriage, verse 13 of chapter so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her, the Lord did, to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. How great a woman has given him birth. And Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. And so one of the parts of this story is that God's providential, gracious care for this vulnerable widow from of all places, Moab, his grace to her becomes his grace through her, that she becomes the grandmother of King David, who's given the promise that one of your sons will sit on a throne that'll last forever, and his kingdom that he'll establish will last forever, speaking of Jesus. That she's in the line. Matthew acknowledges that. Matthew 1.5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Don't forget that. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. What a great God. His care for the vulnerable. His care for you today. Our team is coming back from Rwanda where we are exploring a partnership with World Relief. And there's an old Rwandan proverb that goes like this, an empty stomach has no ears. It's like you can't hear the good news if you don't have food. If, if, if you're so hungry and starving, you, there's nothing else that can enter into your psyche and mind and heart. The 
empty stomach has no ears. And if there was an empty stomach in the story, it is Ruth. But God's grace is greater still. May he open your ears in the midst of your tragedy to hear the word of God that tells us that he is, that he's good, that he's in control, that he knows you, that he cares for you, and that he's provided for you a redeemer and hope. What a great God that would turn one of his enemies, a Moabitess, into one of the great heroes of the faith. What a great God whose grace can change an enemy into a friend, this beautiful, powerful, gracious example of a courageous, kind, loyal servant of God and servant of others. And in this day, when refugees are all about the banter of our day, policies, laws, let's not lose our way and start thinking about refugees on the basis of political conviction or historical record. Let us not lose our way by drifting from the word of God and the character of God whose heart is tender for the refugee. He gives preferential treatment through the law for the refugee, the vulnerable. He has chosen in this grand redemptive story to raise up a refugee who is married to a son of a refugee. Don't forget Boaz. His mother is, remember? Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. She's an outsider. Let's not forget that and lose our way. It is clear to me that when she walked into Bethlehem before her character was truly revealed, that there were a lot of whispers, there was a lot of suspicion, and with that fear. What is the history of God's people relative to Moabite women? Ah, they seduced them. (laughs) Quick lesson on Moab. The the Moabites come when Lot's oldest daughter, remember, has sex with her drunk father Lot so that they could have you know, a future, children. Her son is named Moab. The Moabites didn't let the people of God go through. In fact, Balak, the king, was so afraid of the Israelites that he called the prophet Balaam to to utter curses on the people. It didn't work. God kept blessing the people through the prophet Balaam. But finally, Balaam says to to the king, look, I can't give a curse to you, but I'll give you some advice. Have your women married. They're men, and that'll all work. And it did work. And those women led the men and their families astray to worship the Baal and other gods. That's the history. That King Eglon, for 18 years, oppressed Israel. For 18 years until Ehud, the left-handed, took him out. Remember? In the water closet, so to speak. That God used Ruth, a refugee. And I find it ironic that we have forgotten how many times we prayed for the people in the 1040 window. Do you remember that? The 1040 window, 10 degrees south, 40 degrees north of the equator, Europe, Africa, Asia. And we prayed and we prayed. I, I remember there's kids from our youth group in Wheaton that went to those countries at the risk of their life who could never say where they were trying to reach people for the gospel. And we would hear stories of people coming to faith. And there weren't many within the Muslim community. 
And, and now Muslims are coming here, and we're suspicious, right? We're afraid.